The second reading is from James chapter 2, 1 to 13, and you'll find it on page 1043 in your Bible in the pew. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must now not show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Uh, Bibles there in the pews, if you want to use them, page 1043, but there's a sermon outline there as usual great we can continue on in james this morning we're looking at chapter first part of chapter two but let me pray for us as we begin loving lord we thank you for your love for us we thank you for the opportunity to come together uh, we thank you lord that you've given us your word and we do pray lord you would give us receptive hearts this morning uh, that we would hear it lord um, and understand it and you would help us to delight in it and go away ready to put it into practice so Lord, bless us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. From time to time, you'll hear people make a statement uh, inferring that something is obvious. They might say something like, it's obvious that men and women are different, or it's obvious that salted caramel ice cream is superior to chocolate chip ice cream, or something like, it's obvious that climate change is real, or it's obvious that we should respect one another, or you can go on with many more of those sorts of statements. But I don't know if you've noticed that when people make that sort of statement, it's actually remarkable how often it's not really all that obvious, which they say is so obvious. Many of these obvious statements probably should be true and obvious, but often in reality they are not. Uh, one such example is enshrined in the American Declaration of Independence. It was written at a time when the 13 existing states had decided enough was enough and they wish to be rid of Britain's control over their lives. 
Uh, many of the colonies were fleeing from religious persecution, as you might know, and they wanted to enjoy true freedom without the shackles of the king. And so it was in, the, uh, in that context that the representatives of the states came together on the 4th of July, 1776, and they put their signatures to that very famous document. And what I've got up on the screen, that's probably the best-known part of it, especially for us Aussies here, and this is what it said. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with by their creator with a certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It's a beautiful ideal, but I doubt that those biblical truths are obvious or self-evident anymore if they were even back then. It is a biblical worldview that those writers of the Declaration held which taught them that all people were created in the image of God and therefore equal and therefore have unalienable rights to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. These things should be obvious. They should be self-evident, but they are not. Human history is a sad tale of inequality and discrimination, of favouritism and partiality. The caste system in India, which I'm familiar with, has a terrible example of it. Apartheid in South Africa was another one. Hitler's final solution in World War II. We could think of many more examples. Even amongst God's people, where these truths should be self-evident and put into practice, they so often are not. And so, as we continue in our series, Wisdom from Above, we do come to this little section in James chapter 2. And clearly these truths are not self-evident in practice, otherwise why would James speak about them? And he begins by giving a simple command and he says this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? Of course it is, we wouldn't show favouritism to anyone. Well, it should be self-evident that we shouldn't discriminate and show preferential preferential treatment because we know that everyone is created in the image of God and of equal value and precious to him well if that's the case why is James talking about that here he says it because there was very real issue in the church at that time but I'm glad he says it's because fallen human nature has a tendency or a habit of discriminating and showing favoritism we're sort of bent that way there are certainly many examples in the Bible of favouritism. You might think of Isaac, he favoured Esau. Rachel favoured Jacob. Jacob, when he had his own family, he favoured Joseph and so on. You might be able to think of other biblical examples. Think about your own family. There's always a family favourite, isn't there? What about your family? In the family I grew up in, some of my siblings thought I was the favourite. I don't know how they got that idea. But that's what some of them think. Uh, amongst my own children, there is a view that uh, one child benefited of, of, from preferential treatment. Well, of course, Karen and I dispute that fiercely. But my point is this. There is the practice or even the perception of favouritism all around us. And James is saying it has no place in the life of God's people in the church. It is interesting the way James speaks of his half-brother here. He describes Jesus as our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And at this point, James may be subtly saying, when we show favouritism, we are giving glory to someone who doesn't deserve it. 
as all the glory for God's people should be directed to Jesus, our Messiah and Saviour, and nowhere else. Well, having made that simple command, he goes on then in verses 2 through 7 to illustrate uh, why we should not show favouritism. He describes a situation which to our ears might seem unlikely, but it was clearly a real experience in the life of the church then. He describes two different men who come into a church meeting of some sort. It's not clear whether it's an actual church gathering for worship or some other gathering, but it seems that there's regular churchgoers there and maybe some other people who are invited along as well. The two men could not be more different. One is described as having all the trappings of wealth. Wears a gold ring, fine clothes. Literally, it says he's dressed in bright, shiny clothes. It's a picture of someone wearing elegant, clean, luxurious clothes. The other man comes from another world. His clothes are described as filthy and dirty, literally shabby, and he is poor. In that culture, you might not know this, but people wore a white Roman toga most of the time, and even Jews wore a white robe. And the whiteness of the garment was almost a status symbol. There was almost a pecking order of whiteness. Can you imagine that? And this poor man's robes were barely off-white. His economic status was reflected in his clothes and were told that they were filthy. He would have stood out just as much as the rich man would have stood out, but for all the wrong cultural reasons. And the difference in these men's appearance was matched by the different receptions that they received. The rich man is shown the dress circle, if you like, of the gathering, while the contempt for the poor man is seen in the demeaning way that he's addressed. You stand there, or if you must sit on the floor. The hypocrisy and the humiliation of the situation is clearly evident. And James concludes in verse 4 saying, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts now James in this verse is really reminding us of what he said back in chapter 1 verse 8 about being double-minded you might remember he spoke about the double-minded person who's tossed back and forth like the wind in the waves well here in chapter 2 James just wants to see that discrimination that's on display here comes because the person has a divided mind with conflicting thoughts which is then reflected in his divided and conflictive treatment of these two men coming into the church meeting. So the internal processes of the mind become evident in the preferential treatment given to the rich man. Now I hope I don't have to convince you that with wealth comes status, with status comes privilege and with privilege comes significant advantage. About 30 years ago when Karen and I were young, uh, we had a real experience of discrimination be based on our appearances. Uh, we were, um, yeah, I said, young, no children. We were um, travelling in a trip of a lifetime through Europe uh, and we had Ural tickets. We were backpacking, so everything we had was carried on our backs. Uh, we are in the north of Italy and uh, we were in first-class section and because, I suspect, was the way we looked, we were repeatedly told, you know this is the first-class section only. Different conductors told us, different people who would come in, you know this is the first class section only. Yeah, we know. Look, here we've got the ticket. Um, it happened many times. But I have to admit that uh, some of the beautiful people that got on that train, they were dressed exquisitely. 
I must admit, you know the Italians, a lot of clothing. Uh, they had beautiful knitted coats, designer Italian shoes. Um, the women were dripping in jewellery and the women's makeup made it look like they were about to do a Ferrari commercial or something. You know, it was, they were beautiful people. I have to admit, they looked magnificent. And then we, there we were, dressed, jeans and joggers and, well, you get the picture. No one would even come and sit in our compartment. That was really interesting. People would come and look in and go, oh, no. I'm sure I wore a deodorant, you know, it wasn't that. See, in the world, wealth opens doors to advantage and privilege. Poverty closes doors and leads to discrimination and disadvantage. But when it comes to the people of God and their treatment of others, there can be no such distinction or preferential treatment. And James goes on to give some comprehensive reasons why this cannot be the case for followers of Christ. First of all, he says this in verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. At first glance, this verse actually could make you think that God is being discriminating by choosing the poor for salvation over against the rich. But James's point is that God also chooses the poor, poor in this world, to be rich in the kingdom of God. He doesn't show preferential treatment to the rich when it comes to salvation. All can be saved by God's grace when they repent and accept Christ as Saviour and Lord. And this applies to those who are either materially rich or materially poor. God does not discriminate when it comes to salvation. And we should not discriminate when it comes to our care and treatment of others. Now James in this process is reminding us of the riches that truly matter. And they are the things eternal. To be spiritually rich in faith is the greatest blessing of all. And the glorious riches of Jesus' kingdom, he's reminding us, are future, that we will inherit them one day. It's guaranteed, just as Jesus promised. So if we recognise wealth in these terms as spiritual, that's real wealth, then we are less likely to fall for the trap of favouring those who may have material advantage, which is limited in scope. It's going to pass away, isn't it? Compared to the eternal wealth of Jesus' kingdom. God's people should reflect God's character. That's what James is saying here. And be impartial in the treatment of all people. Well, James then gives his readers a second reason to review their behaviour. Not only is it unchristlike, he says it's foolish. Such favouritism is of no advantage. He goes on, verse 7, he says, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now context again helps us understand what lies behind these verses. See, James gives two common sense reasons why they should not be showing favouritism to the rich. First of all, it's the very rich people that are exploiting God's people economically. Commentators say that most of James's readers were poor agricultural labourers. They weren't wealthy landowners with all the privileges. And so that, as such, they were open to economic abuse, being poorly paid with little recourse. 
And yet it's these people, these very people that, are, that they're showing favouritism to. Seems to me James is saying, are you crazy? <laughs> Why would you do that? There's no advantage in it. But secondly, James appears to be indicating that God's people were also persecuted as followers of Jesus by these very same rich people again. As he says, they are the ones blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong. Now, it may be that this economic and religious sort of persecution and the reasons that they're being dragged into court are coming together. Favouring the rich on any level, James is saying, is unjustifiable. But he says it dishonours the poor person. It gives glory where it doesn't belong and it's dishonouring to God. Well, having told us not to do, what not to do, James then tells us the positive, what we are to do, as he speaks about the royal command in verse 8. And so he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted as a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. See, James could not be more definitive. To show favouritism in whatever form is sin. And I know you all know that that word means that's bad in the Bible. Sin's not good. He says favouritism is a sin, it is to break God's law. However, to practice the royal command to love your neighbour as yourself is the opposite. Is to honour God, is to please God and to honour people. Now, sadly, in our culture, love is defined in terms of emotions and feelings, whereas in Scripture, it is defined by Jesus and in terms of action. Jesus is the ultimate example of what it means to not just love your neighbour as yourself, but also to love your enemies. It's all embracing this love about loving your neighbours. And it's profoundly demonstrated by Jesus in his sacrifice on the cross to reconcile us to God. Favoritism divides and brings disunity. It says some people are more valuable than others. It sends a message of rejection, of you don't belong to the unfavoured person. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. If you'll have, you'll know it's not a pleasant thing. Love, on the other hand, as defined by God's word and seen in the Lord Jesus, brings unity, brings reconciliation. It sends a message of welcome and of safety and security. And isn't that what we all want? Now, you might be wondering what point James is trying to make as he speaks about breaking the law at one point, even if you uphold it at another. Well, James is simply highlighting an hypocrisy that was very common then, but I think can easily creep into our lives today. Because there were those in the church back then who created a hierarchy in their mind when it comes to obeying, obeying God's law. They felt that some of God's laws were sort of more important to take seriously than others. So in their mind, for example, obedience to the heavier commands like do not murder, we know that's a serious one, uh, outweighed any failure to adhere to a lighter command like do not commit adultery. James is absolute. He is saying such thinking is false. To break the law at one point, whatever that point might be, is to break it all, to be guilty of breaking it all. 
Now, I think for any of us, there can be a real danger for us also in building a hierarchy of sin in our own mind, and so we can sort of justify lesser sins that we want to accommodate. Once again, James is getting at that idea of having a divided mind when it comes to God's Word. If we think one part is more important or one part is less serious in its application, then we too will be able to justify all sorts of ungodly behaviour and then arbitrarily apply God's Word in our lives. When we do this, we conveniently accommodate a particular sin or lifestyle choice that suits us. For James readers, it was favouritism. For us, it could be any number of other things, something completely different. Jesus is clear on this issue. He says, from the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Pretty clear. So far, James has given us a simple command, do not show favouritism. The alternative, he says, is to be impartial in the application of the royal law, which is to love your neighbour as yourself. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our church community here, Mossman Village Church, was known for its love in the wider community? People talk about, oh, that church down there, it's fantastic. Those people are so loving and accepting and welcoming and kind and caring. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Well, in this closing section, James points us finally to the law of liberty, which teaches us that beautiful phrase where mercy triumphs over judgment. Look what he says. He says, speak and act as those who will be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. For most people, the idea of law providing freedom is an absolute oxymoron. I say, what on earth are you talking about? In the minds of many, the law is thought to stop us, to be a barrier to us from doing what we really want to do. It's a killjoy. The law is associated with rules and regulations, with limitations and restrictions, anything but freedom. And the way of the world is to be completely autonomous. That is how the world defines freedom, a life without limitation. However, the Bible describes that as slavery to sin, the exact opposite. There is no such thing as true freedom outside the Word of God. God's Word, God's law set the boundaries within which we were designed to function and to flourish. Don't we forget that. This is the way we're meant to flourish. And freedom without God-given boundaries in the end is anarchy. That's what you get. Through Christ, anyone can experience the freedom God wants for us. Freedom from fear. Freedom from shame and from guilt. Freedom to live with confidence, with joy and hope and peace. That's the freedom we want. And that is only possible because Jesus Christ has broken down all the barriers that sin brings to our lives so that we can experience the liberty of enjoying a loving relationship with our Creator God, who desperately loves us, He's accepted us and He treasures us. And Jesus is the one who perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law on our behalf, so that we can have confidence of vindication on that day of judgment. 
You see, the cross of Christ stands as an eternal testimony to the fact that mercy triumphs over grace, sorry, over judgment. See, James' final command here to God's people is to speak and act, he says, and it's used in the continuous tense like it was last week. You've got to keep on doing this, keep speaking and acting as those who have experienced the freedom and the mercy that only Jesus brings. This means that as an extension of our relationship with Jesus, we should of all people have lives marked by a real and tangible expression of mercy to all we meet, anybody. They should see us as people of mercy and not judgment. You and I know this true well. The world is driven by hatred and revenge and getting even. It's on the news every night. The Christian church, in contrast, is meant to be a beacon of love and light and mercy and grace. And that's to be extended to all people, irrespective of race, creed, religion or gender. Sadly, that hasn't always been the case. But that's what we can be in this world as we represent Jesus. I think these words of James are well summarised in that Old Testament verse from Micah chapter 6, verse 8 which says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We, the church of God, are meant to be a living and breathing example to the world that mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, as I began, I suggested that that Declaration of Independence speaks of the self-evident truth that all people are created equal. And James, in this section of his letter, brings to us three powerful truths that should also be self-evident, no doubt about it, blindingly obvious, but so often they are not, even amongst us, God's people. James says there should be no favouritism, no preferential treatment of rich over poor, yet we live in a world where there is prejudice against all sorts of classes of people. We're called to love our neighbours as ourselves and yet we live in a world where self-love is the ideology of today. We're called to be people of mercy in the world, not judgment, but we live in a world which says don't show mercy, just get even. See the wisdom that James brings to us seems is not so obvious or self-evident today, which is why we are called to speak and act as those who know better, so that we can show the world that there is a better way. God shows no favouritism in saving people for himself, both rich and poor alike. God has shown us what it means to love our neighbours as ourselves through Jesus' death on the cross. And God has shown us the beauty of how mercy triumphs over judgment. Three obvious qualities that should mark us out as God's people today. No favouritism. Love like Christ. Show mercy. Simple? Obvious? Maybe not. Let's pray. Loving Lord, these truths should be self-evident and obvious to us, let alone others. And yet, Lord, in our frailty, we often fail in them all. Uh, we pray for your forgiveness 
But we do want to be a people marked by these great qualities, Lord, that Jesus showed to us that you continue to pour out upon us. Help us to treat people with dignity, Lord, that we meet, whether it's in church or somewhere else. Help us to respect them and value them, and may they know that from us. And help us to love like Jesus, love our neighbour as ourself, Lord. May that be a sacrificial love that you help us to continue to practise. And Lord, what a blessing that we have had that gift of your mercy. You don't judge us, you don't condemn us, Lord. You've forgiven us and shown us your mercy. Help us to view others with those same eyes of mercy that you viewed us with. That we might see people's lives changed by these very wonderful truths that we live out. So Lord, fill us with your spirit. Empower us to honour you in this way. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.